Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. I'm Liz Mitchell. Welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio show in our 18th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. As a producer of Dark Past, Bright Future, I have had the pleasure of researching and interviewing a wide array of fascinating topics and guest. Tonight, it is our esteemed honor to air for you a documentary on the phenomenal life of Bloomington legend, Reverend Dr. Marvin Chandler, who transcend from this world on Saturday, September 23, 2023. Rev. Chandler never stopped sharing his love of music, commitment to justice, and a passion for ministry with others. Learn about the fascinating native Hoosier, Rev. Dr. Marvin Chandler, whose life not only made a significant impact on Indiana, but on our nation as well. I hope you will enjoy this tribute to his memory. This program is made possible in part by Indiana Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you. My twin sister, Marcella, we were playing church. My mother bought the piano at an auction sale for a dollar and a half. My mother came to see what was going on. Marvin, is that you? Was that you playing? My mother, I thought you knew. I have no idea how I sat down and started playing. I had not done it before. I have no recollection, and neither did my mother. And pretty soon we had all the neighbors in the house, and they were all (laughs) going, you know, it was quite an exciting moment. I remember that they they kept asking me to play, and I would play other things. Very shortly after that, I gave a public concert in Bloomington at the church, I think it was. I was four years old. And somewhere in my psyche, in in the inner experience, you know, my little data bank up here, that music was deposited. I am after. I've been everywhere looking for some place to be. My concern through the years, where does this music, especially jazz music, which emphasizes kind of creating stuff in the moment, where does that come from? How does this music, which, you know, had a reputation for being certainly not godly, Uh, But how does this music reflect something really about the nature of creation? And that is a religious question. So the conversation for me is, how do I talk about jazz and religion and jazz and God in the same conversation? 
1839, North Carolina was among states to pass miscegenation laws. So-called race mixing was illegal, especially marriage. About that time, Samuel and Martha Chandler, Marvin's great-great-grandparents, left North Carolina and moved to southern Indiana. They were mulattoes. They had several children. One of them was my great-grandfather, David. There was, at that time, a little settlement called Lick Creek, and my great-great-grandfather was listed as a trustee for a church that was built in 1842, I believe it was. In the late 1800s, many of them moved to the Bloomington area. They eventually owned enough land in that area that it was known locally as Chandlersville. In 1918, Chris Chandler and Hattie Evans were married and moved into Bloomington. In 1929, they became parents of twins, Marcella and Marvin. They also had seven other children. Marvin was four years old when he astonished his mother and neighbors, and he continues to amaze people. put so much into it, but it's so effortless. You know, you see him play and say, wow, how did he do that? And then when they make that run. you get finished working and you're tired. I mean, you're worn out because you had to struggle so much with musicians. With him, it's just so much comfort. I call it, I'm riding on a cloud. You know, I'm just floating right there because the music is just carrying me right where I need to be. So it seems we've stood and talked before. And we People watch us perform, they say, wow, he just watches you like a hawk. You know, because I can go anywhere and he's right there. Everett is, is my brother. When you're a musician and you're a, accompanying a soloist, you are co-creators. We, we create something together. An artist really shares their soul. And when he does that, you know, it's, it takes a lot of courage to expose your soul. And love before, and love before. Everett really has a message 
a message of love and openness to life. When I was about six or seven years old, I think, the Cabin Kids was a group in Hollywood. They had a manager named Elizabeth Hall. She came through Bloomington and actually wanted me to go to Hollywood to be with the Cabin Kids. My folks talked to me about it, I remember this. But I didn't want to leave the family and go to California and, of course, they wanted me to go, and if we either either the whole family had to go, or else it was not going to work. So I turned it down. I didn't really have any great interest in that anyway. And of course, there was school. My elementary school teacher was named Mrs. Alice Evans. She and Mrs. Porter, who was the wife of the pastor of my church, they taught in Banneker School in Bloomington. In those days, schools were segregated. Mrs. Evans and Mrs. Porter taught us English language, arts, uh, music. We really had a wonderful educational experience at Banneker School. And one of the things Mrs. Evans used to ask me to do as a little kid, I'll never forget, it, was to play Red Sails in the Sunset. That was her favorite song. When I was a freshman at Bloomington High, freshman or sophomore, I began taking classes along with regular college students at IU Music School. It was difficult, but he amazed professors by absorbing a three-year college course in piano theory while in high school. He also played saxophone in the school band, piano in the orchestra, sang in the choir, and was a member of the National Honor Society. When I was about 15 or 16, I remember going to the Second Baptist Church in Bloomington, playing for the service. And one Sunday, feeling this overwhelming sense of need to define what was going on in my spirit, and believing that somehow, in the love that I felt with people at that moment in that church, that I was in touch with yes, what Jesus me. was all about and what oh, God yes, was all about. After high school, Marvin enrolled at Indiana University, but soon dropped out. And I just was trying to find myself at some point because I was really feeling not at home with myself. I think there are points in your life, in everybody's life, when they have these questions and when they have these issues of trying to just be who they are. Reverend W. Douglas Ray, who was the minister of the First Baptist Church and knew Marvin, asked him to come by his office. And he said, when are you going back to school? And I said, I, didn't, I don't know. And he said, well, I want you to go try Franklin College. I went there one year, and it was good, but it didn't fit either. But the experience was wonderful as I reflect on it. And uh, Dr. Richardson was really a wonderful person. Even though he knew I wasn't gonna stay, he encouraged me to, to finish. 
And that resulted in my eventually going to seminary. What a beautiful thing love is. Marvin and Portia had known each other since childhood. They went to Banneker and Bloomington High School together. They lived just two blocks from each other, and he began to come around to visit Portia's front porch, where she and other friends just happened to be. I think we just went to the movies on Saturday with the bunch, and we didn't really just out of my house or his house. You know, that was about the extent of it. We didn't do any whole lot of single dating. There was a place called the Elks Club, and there was a place called the Masons. A lot of the young people went there, you know, and they had music, and we'd dance. And, but see, Marvin, Marvin never danced uh, much. This relationship worked wonderfully for them. They fell in love and were married in 1950. I, I didn't even want my wife to be an extension of me. And she, she certainly was not of the personality to allow herself to be an extension of anybody. Portia is Portia. Love is the song of the heart. Years ago, Marvin wrote a song for her. I'm a very independent kind of person. I like doing things for myself. I've always been that way. And that's good, because I, I can't imagine anything more boring than for people to be totally like each other. <laughs> what a beautiful thing love is. In 1952, Marvin was ordained as a minister at the Second Baptist Church in Bloomington by Reverend Moses M. Porter. The following year, Reverend Porter died, and the congregation called Reverend Marvin Chandler to be its new minister, and he accepted. His salary was $40 a week. He and Portia now had three daughters, and it proved to be an economic strain. After one year, he resigned and went back to school at IU. But even after he left the pulpit at Second Baptist, he continued to get calls for spiritual assistance. Beginning in 1948, Marvin and his sisters, Marlene and Marcella, appeared on a powerful new television station in Bloomington. It covered central and southern Indiana. They called themselves the Chandler Trio, and they were on the air for 10 years. The first in the state to have our own television show, and maybe in the country, first African Americans to have their own television program. We sang pretty much gospel music and spiritual music. They also played at various churches, schools, and civic clubs around the state. In 1954, the Chandler Trio was asked to be on the Arthur Godfrey Show. So we went to New York to be on the Arthur Godfrey Show, which we tied in first place. As a result of that, we had a week with Arthur Godfrey. After the television appearance, Coral Records offered to put them under contract. Coral was a major label at the time, so this was a big opportunity. 
But I was a senior at IU at that point, and I wanted to finish my degree, my work on my baccalaureate degree. And they wanted us to go right then, so we decided that really we didn't want to make that a major professional step. Marvin received his B.S. degree in social service in 1957. I hung around Bloomington for several years after I graduated from IU. I worked for a musical advertising firm for a while. Wrote music out in Nashville, Indiana, run by a fellow named Don Sheets. His wife's name is Marty. We would do up to 21 instruments on these big tapes, on tracks, on the tapes, and then 21 voices. So I would play piano, then I'd play vibes maybe, and then I would sing four parts for the male parts, and she would sing the four parts for the female parts, and we would write these, sing these jingles that we had written. It was funny, but it was great. We enjoyed doing that. I was in a jazz group that was called the Big Four, and we played at the Van Orman Hotel in Bloomington. The manager was from South Carolina. They wanted us to play for the opening night. And I said, great, but I'm not gonna play where my people can't come in and eat. Because in those days, Bloomington was still fairly segregated, and Indiana was. One of the fellows in the, in the little group were adamant about it as well, because they said, no, we're not gonna play where he can't play. So finally, the manager said, well, I'm not gonna put a sign out there in front of the hotel saying, Welcome Negroes in those days, they called it Negroes. I'm not going to do that, but if they come, they will be served. And I said, that's good enough for me. So I made sure that there were a few people there that night. We opened there and stayed six and a half years. He also played at IU campus events, service clubs, and other venues. He was enjoying himself, but still had questions. How, how do I measure my own offerings. How do I know when I've really done well? How do I feel fulfilled in all of this? And who am I in all of this? I, it, it was, it's, those were the issues. And at the same time I was doing that, I was wrestling with the fact that I was playing jazz music and some people were telling me I was going to hell in a basket. At the same time, I loved God. And I had lots of questions about that, about my love. Again, W. Douglas Ray offered some advice, encouraging him to consider a seminary education. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful In 1959, Marvin entered seminary at Colgate Rochester Divinity School. The family moved to Buffalo because he was assigned by the seminary to be an assistant pastor at a church there. He traveled to Rochester for classes. In the first place we lived was Buffalo, which was a, a culture shock to go from Bloomington to Buffalo, New York. And at the time, we lived in the projects. And we were young. We were probably seven and eight. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't very old. I yeah. think we were seven when I left. A year later, Marvin was still in seminary, and they moved to Leroy, New York, where he became a student minister at the Second Baptist Church. At the same time, I took a position as minister to the migrants of Monroe County, which was Rochester's county. There were 39 migrant agricultural migrant camps around the Rochester area. 
My responsibility was to, to take food and clothing to help migrant people and also to do worship services on the camps and to do whatever I could in terms of trying to learn what it was to be a minister. God can help us to meet whatever comes across our pathway. The largest camp which had more than 1,500 people at Brockport. The whole system was almost like a feudal system with the farmer who was kind of the feudal lord. And then you had these migrant families. And they were mostly African-American. It, it almost kept people, well it did, keep people, uh, kept them in perpetual poverty. Going into these migrant camps in New York with people living in boxes, cardboard boxes, and that struck something within me that I never, to this day, I think about that. That no matter how bad off I think I am, there's always someone worse. God will take care. We were there to make it livable for people. But in the process, I became more and more socially aware. And yet there was this real divide between the church that was a part of my seminary experience and the camps. After graduation from Divinity School in 1963, he became an associate executive for the Rochester Area Council of Churches. He also attended the March on Washington that same year. I was in the second tier of people and heard that wonderful speech. But it was, you know, it, it was not a real barn burner. And I think later on I'm told that Mahalia was there. Mahalia Jackson was standing there and she said something to him, Martin. So it was at that point that he shifted from his prepared text to this, I have a dream speech. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. When he started in on that, it became a revival meeting. And singing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. People started crying and shouting and just, you know, it was a marvelous moment. And, and right after he finished, Mahalia started singing. What a day. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement in the country became increasingly vocal and active. There were racial confrontations over police actions, unemployment, education, housing, racial prejudice, and voting rights. These problems had been brewing for years, and violence was often just below the surface, looking for a trigger. Rochester, it turned out, was no exception. On Friday, July 24, 1964, Rochester police arrested an intoxicated young black man at a street party. There was resistance. Talk of police brutality spread quickly through the neighborhood, 
and angry crowds formed and clashed with police. Property was destroyed. The National Guard was brought in. It went on for three days and became about much more than just the arrest. Among the people called to help calm things down was Reverend Chandler in his capacity with the Council of Churches. So we went down and I said, well, Lord, I'd like to talk to some of the people who are really who are doing this. And I, because so I, I kind of wanted to get an idea from them what they were rioting about. What did they want? One of the things they said to me is there nobody listened to them. And I said, well, we're going to set up something so that you can get listened to. You get some folks that you really are your leaders and let me know and we'll get together. The next night, they did get together. In the middle of the riot zone, two other ministers joined Reverend Chandler. They asked me why I was there. First <laughs> they said, what are you doing here? And they used a few choice words about it. You're with that council of churches, that white organization. And I said, well, I'm down here because I'm concerned. And I said, yeah, I'm with the council of churches, but I'm, I'm one of us, too. And I want to know what it is I can do to help. They said, well, you know, ain't nothing you can do because you, you, if you're one of us, you don't have any power. I said, well, that's the truth, but we're going to get some power. And they were mainly concerned, I think, about people respecting their dignity as, as people, as persons. Not everyone was pleased with the work Reverend Chandler was doing. One night, we heard this pal, and whoever it was shot through and hit that front door window and through a wall. We didn't know really who it was. Still don't have any idea. There was no kind of, of organized response to all this turmoil that was going on. And there were some people from Eastman Kodak Company, very strong people, and, and from uh, Xerox Corporation. And here all these big corporations with fabulous resources. But there was no connection between them and the poor communities. They said, well, who are your community leaders? They kept asking me and a few other people. I said, what we need to do is talk to some people from the ward. I became one of the touch points. After some searching, a vice president of Kodak finally agreed to go talk with the people in the ward. Well, they'd start cussing him out the minute they saw him, and he just sat there and took all this stuff. I said, now listen, this man doesn't have to be here. And he doesn't have to take this. Either we listen to him and let him be a part of this process or else forget it. So we had some really straightforward sessions. A group named Fight was organized two years after the riots. It was a coalition of community and religious groups dedicated to civil rights, and Reverend Chandler was a part of it. Fight asked Kodak to develop employment and training programs for poor people. Finally, in 1967, Kodak and Xerox helped set up the Business Opportunities Corporation to provide assistance to minority and disadvantaged businesses. I thought that the riots were a, a, a kind of horrible, wonderful time because this was a community really letting the world know 
what they were about. Raymond Scott was a minister in Rochester and a good friend of Marvin. This was in 1971. I got a call from Raymond. There had been a disturbance at Attica Prison, and a guard had been either pushed or fell off of a catwalk or something, and, and he was killed. I called Marvin Chandler and said, listen, you're going to Attica with me. I got this call from Scotty saying that the sheriff of Monroe County of Rochester had asked if he and I would go down to Attica to, to talk to the prisoners. And that was like 2 o'clock in the morning. So I said, okay, I hustled, got up. Attica was just a part of what he did. I knew it was serious because they weren't getting any place. The sheriff drove us down. And we arrived at Attica Prison. It's like a fortress. It's the prison itself, and then there's this big wall around it. It's like a medieval kind of thing. We were asked if we would be willing to act as facilitators for a process between some negotiators. They were going to meet to negotiate between the state and the prisoners to see if they could work this out because the prisoners had a list of 21 demands. The demands included better food, education opportunities, better health care, and religious freedom. We said, well, we can't be facilitators of anything unless we get the permission of the prisoners to do this as well. And they said, well, you can't go down there to, to where those guys are. They'll, they'll kill you. And we said, well, we can't do what you're asking us to do because if we are here representing you, we have absolutely no integrity to that position. So they made us sign a release that if anything, if those prisoners or anybody killed us, then, you know, they, the state would be absolved of any responsibility. So we signed it. And we went down there and we met the prisoners and they had on masks and stuff. And they, we explained to them that we had been asked, we were both ministers, and they said, well, yeah, if you can do anything, we'd be happy for you all to do it. It took a lot for Scotty and me to subdue our own feelings and be very careful not to be partisan in those negotiations. We knew where our own feelings were. It was difficult. We negotiated all of the issues that were between the state and the prisoners except for one. The prosecuting attorney of Wyoming County had indicted all 1,500 prisoners for the death of the guard. The prisoners said, we don't know, because there was so much going on, we don't know what happened, but we, we are willing to have one of us represent all of us. If you just indict somebody, he wouldn't do it. We got stuck on that one point. So Reverend Chandler, Reverend Scott, and others went back into the prison to tell the inmates that there was no deal. All 1,492 of them were indicted for the death of the guard. It was tense. That night, there were fires in 40-gallon drums all around. And at one point, the, there was this disturbance that went up in the yard. We were still in there. And we stayed in with the prisoners. 
And somebody said, they're coming in, they're coming in, they're gonna get it. The prisoners, they put their bodies between us in order to protect us. When we stayed in there all night, that was Friday night, on Saturday morning, we finally went out about four o'clock in the morning. And there was a prisoner, they called him Big Black. And we had to go out through this narrow kind of passageway. And as we went out, he said, Rev, he's a great big man, he said, Rev, they're gonna whip ass. But thank you for coming. And he grabbed me and held me, and I broke down. I just couldn't stand it. It just, so, and I, 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 I patted him, you know, and I said, it's gonna be okay. And then we went on back to Rochester. Next morning, I went to Memorial Amy Zion Church. And the minister of the church, Andrew Gibson, asked me to give a report to the congregation. And I started talking about what was going on. And I realized that I was crying. I was just started, tears started coming down my cheeks and I, I, I couldn't help it. Because I realized as I gave this report, I realized I was going to go back. After church, I went back to the house and Portia was there and she said, you're going back, aren't you? And I said, yes. When we got back to the prison, it was maybe seven o'clock in the evening. The negotiating team, they were alternately cursing and in tears. And it began to rain. Here we are. We laid there all night that night, on the floor and in chairs and wherever we could. Very early in the morning, they were told that they must leave or be put under house arrest. We said, well, we can't leave the prison. We're not going out there with... At that point, there were like cops lining the, the, all the way down to the courtyards in front of the administration building, like 3,000 cops and trucks and guardsmen. And, and we were scared that we weren't going out there. You know, we said, we can't go out there with all those people chomping at the bits. And he said, well, either that or you're under house arrest. So we said, well, we'll stay under house arrest. That was about eight. So we sat there, and some of the guys really began to cry. At 9.06, the clock stopped. And then we heard these helicopters come in. And we heard gunshots. But we looked through the, through the shades. I did at that point. And I could see guards firing their guns out of the tower. I could look out the other window if you peeped and you could see them bringing out bodies and, you know, putting them in the trucks and some of them throw them on the ground. It looked to me like. Anyway, at about three, we left the prison. And they said, you can go and there's a state police escort for you. So Scotty and I and all these negotiators start out of the prison. And I, I'll never forget this as long as I live. We had to go down this long phalanx of people. And I said, Lord, please don't let me stumble. But for some crazy reason, I just didn't want to stumble. And they called us everything. You could hear 
people muttering, and I will not repeat what they said about us. I didn't say a word to Scotty. He didn't say a word to me all the way back to Rochester. We were just, we were just like, I mean, what do you do when you've seen what had just happened, where people were just killed, and, and you knew it? In less than 15 minutes, 37 people were killed, including hostages, who were prison employees. Dozens severely wounded, all by gunshot. The prisoners had no guns. It remains the worst prison riot in U.S. history. Well, that was a terrible experience. And I can never forget it. It's just, it's etched. Now, I know it impacted him because over the years, he, you know, it, it really affected him profoundly. Nothing that I could do. I, I just sat there and, you know, and hurt from the inside out. And it's at that moment that I think we are open, really, we are open to understand what it is to be a human being. Frank Big Black Smith was tortured by authorities at the end of the riot. He barely survived. He died in 2014 at the age of 71. Reverend Chandler officiated at his funeral. I received a uh, call from a black woman who was president of the San Francisco Council of Churches. Well, that intrigued me. I went out there. You know how California is. Everybody does their own thing anyway. And San Francisco was just really wild. So I didn't really wasn't anxious to go. So he returns to Rochester. But very soon, he again hears from San Francisco. And then I got a call from Howard Thurman. I had read a couple of his books, and I knew that here was a man, he's an extraordinary person. And Howard Thurman said, well, why don't you just come out and let's have some coffee? So I flew out there, <laughs> never will forget it. I met Howard Thurman, he met me at the door, and he said, come on in. I went in, so Howard said, oh, I see you smoke a pipe, because it was in my pocket. I said, yeah, he said, well, I do too. So we filled our pipes. And uh, he said, would you like a touch of brandy? <laughs> now, I'm a Baptist preacher, and I said, well, if you don't tell anybody. <laughs> he said, I think it'd be a good idea for you to come out here. And uh, so I thought about it, and okay, I'll give it a whirl. And he said, we're moving to California. Are you guys coming? And we said, yep. And I said, I don't want to go. I love the house we lived in. And I had this job. And I like that. And so I just, uh, then I got thinking, if I let him go out there, someone will get him, and I'll never get him back. <laughs> so I said, well, I guess I'll go. As an executive in the Council of Churches, my responsibility was to relate to housing, social services, um, prison ministries. So I was out in the streets an awful lot, meeting with all kinds of people. <laughs> he held that position for three years, 
when he was invited to take over as executive director of the Howard Thurman Educational Trust. So Howard Thurman decided to establish a scholarship for these students who he thought had possibilities but had not been offered the opportunities. And so that's how he funded these students in these lesser-known colleges. I mean, everybody knew about Morehouse and Spelman, and, but there were others that, that didn't have that kind of money. And we searched for and found young people who had great promise and gave them money. At the same time, Reverend Chandler was the co-pastor of the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples. Well, it had been founded by Howard Thurman and a Presbyterian minister as one of the first interracial churches in America. I don't know how much or what kind of influence I had on Dr. Thurman. I think I did in some respects because there wasn't a Sunday that he did not come to the church when I was pastoring and listen to me preach. And he was as hungry for that experience as anybody I've ever known. One time he wrote me a note, so I took it. And when we got up there and I'm sitting in the pulpit and the choir's singing, I'm getting ready to preach. And I look at this note, he wrote, if you ever have anything to say, please say something. I sure need to hear it. And <laughs> this, this is Howard Thurman. <laughs> he used to say that God had put a, a crown over our heads and expected us to grow up to wear it. <laughs> and I thought, wow. In the 25 years since leaving Bloomington, Marvin and his family had many unforgettable experiences. Well, we just, I just got tired and wanted to go home. <laughs> Indiana seemed like a pretty good place. When I came back here from the West Coast, there was a fellow named Jack Guilfoy who was a drummer, and we played together for a while. He did not really get into the jazz scene until, probably until he came here to Indianapolis. I mean, his chops incorporated the foundational language of black music. There's a core experience, a core aesthetic. In addition to playing jazz, Marvin and Jack recorded an album of Christmas music. She named him Christ Jesus Yes, Lord, she named him Christ Jesus, oh my Lord. Jack formed a Naptown Jazz Quintet, primarily played schools. We did uh, assemblies and exposed them to jazz music. They had an earlier connection. Jack was the recording engineer on an album of sacred music. Both of them were inducted into the Indianapolis Jazz Hall of Fame in 2003. 
2008, Marvin was awarded an Honorary Doctorate of Divinity from Franklin College. But he just said jazz is a talent. It, it is a gift from God because it's creative. That was his passion and he did it in such a way that it was a ministry. If you go into Barnes United Methodist Church in Indianapolis on any Sunday morning, you'll hear music that defies you to be still and your spirit to be silent. You know, your music and your ministry, uh, they're all in one, but you got just a different brand of music that you're presenting when you're in the church. When something is true, it does not become true until it's true for you. The African-American church has this wonderful power of emotional experience. Well, when I first learned about the versatility of Reverend Chandler, it was during a jazz festival event in downtown Indianapolis. And I saw Reverend Chandler playing with the jazz ensemble just beautifully. It was not long after I had joined Barnes United Methodist Church, which was about 15 years ago. The next Sunday, there he was playing the piano. He's a genuinely good musician and he's a wonderful, wonderful minister. When I preached, I, my whole spirit went into that. I had the approach of not being constrained. For me, the experience of preaching is not lecture. Open us up as the flowers open up in the spring. That we may know the refreshing of your spirit. Guide us in all that we do. That we may give you and we hear that same spirit when he sings in church. But there is something about allowing myself to be open to the moment when I know that what is coming out of me is not just mine. And I can tell you that that is that is, oh my God, that is so frightening and so wonderful. <laughs> Doctor, how you doing, man? It's good to see you. It's good to we see go you. We go all the way back good, to Bloomington, 1955. Being the person that he is, his standards and so forth, it's brought my standards up. Not only me, but other musicians who have worked with us. Some people talk about the preacher that he's supposed to be good news, and people, a lot of times when the preacher come in the room, people say, oh, there's bad news. Reverend Chandler. Just being in his presence just makes everybody better, you know. Better musician, better person, you know. Because we know we're in good hands. Yeah. <laughs> Jazz royalty. Yes, it is. It is. He's one of my old friends. I've been at it 73 years. 
Ladies and gentlemen, 15 minutes, 15 minutes to the top of the show. The Lord's been good to me. Amen. Get up and brought on out of there. That's the young Dave Tatum. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. I guess this way. When a man or woman plays jazz, you use the medium, which is music, but you open yourself up to the experience itself. The musicians all know kind of the pattern of what we're gonna do, but we do not know what that moment is going to bring, and it's never the same. He's got Oscar Peterson, he's got Art Tatum, he's got all of these other nuances in his music that he's bringing out, he's, he's, so he's like a chameleon while at the same time maintaining that core essence of what black music is. In 2017, Reverend Chandler was honored by the Witherspoon Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis. Let us give our honoree a round of applause. Come on, Portia, come on, come on, come on. I say welcome to tonight's all-star musical tribute to one of this nation's most accomplished yet humbled servants, the Reverend Dr. Marvin Chandler. So without further ado, let this love fest begin. One of his favorite songs is Stardust.
time just flies. How love can go from warm hills to sell your bodies and leave you with the memories. I don't see any distinction between being a minister and a jazz musician, I think that all of life is an offering to God. As the golden stairs I I realize how special our mother and father were and how much they sacrificed to give us the life that we had was always about love and about caring for other people. He's very sensitive. I think he cares and loves deeply. I've been married to him 68 years. <laughs> and I've known him all my life. And he is the kindest, most gentle, loving, beautiful man that I know. I wouldn't have any other one but him. Everyone there felt the same way as his daughters and Portia. He was given a very special award from the church for, well, being Marvin Chandler. None of us does anything by herself or himself. We have three children, great-grandchildren, a host of relatives and friends. I'm such a blessed man. All I can say is thank you, Jesus. This program is made possible in part by Indiana Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this documentary on Reverend Marvin Chandler, a remarkable Indiana treasure. Again, he departed this life on Saturday, September 23rd. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is myself, Liz Mitchell. Our consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is Chantant Lafotant. Our original theme music was created by Jamal Ephraim with additional background checks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.